Good morning, good day, or good evening, whenever and wherever you are listening. My name is Kevin Fukunaga, and you've joined the Script and Scribe Social. Many of us are socially distancing ourselves, so this is our opportunity to hear from other writers who are going through a similar experience. Today, we're joined by a TV writer who recently joined a TV staff on a show for the very first time, so we'll talk to him about that. His prior experience includes work as a writer's assistant and showrunner's assistant on shows such as Revenge, The Bold Type, and Warrior Nun. He is also a freelance writer whose work has appeared in Complex and The Daily Dot. He is Brendan Gallagher. Thanks for coming back on today, Brendan. Hey, so good to be here, Kevin. Love the pod, and I'm excited to be back during this time of social distancing. Yeah. Um, speaking of social distancing, how are you and Claire uh, holding up during the quarantine? Uh, we're doing good. You know, uh, before we jumped on, we were talking about the fact that being a writer kind of feels good in some ways right now because this uh, feels closer to what an average time might look like in your career. Uh, Claire and I have worked from home together for months at a time before. Um, and as a writer, you know, as long as your computer works or, you know, worse comes to worse, like a pad of paper, you can be productive, which I think is really nice in a moment like this. Whereas my friends who work totally with the public or work totally on set, I think they're really fighting boredom in a way that maybe I'm not as much. But that being said, obviously, uh, anytime you look out the window or turn on the news or look at Twitter, you you, you do have challenges and the uh, crippling depression does kind of creep in, you know, but uh, I would say we're doing good and we're feeling productive, which is, you know, more than you can ask, I think. Right. Now, before we get into more of the quarantine and, and how that affects your work. I think I join everyone in listening and everyone who knows you and saying congratulations. I know you staffed for the first time after, uh, I don't know how long you've been in the industry, but 10 years um, yeah. you know, in, in different capacities. And don't get me wrong. That's, it's not necessarily just a time frame for, you know, cause a lot of it's luck. I was talking to, I think it was Amy Thurlow, who's also a longtime uh, veteran writer's assistant and script coordinator and whatnot. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll be on shows and they won't get picked up and, you know, you have a shot, but then it goes away. So it's, it's, it's not just a talent thing. It's, it's often an opportunity thing, but also a luck thing because you can be given an opportunity and, you know, we'll hire you we're for sure for the next season of staff. And then this show doesn't get picked up and things like that. So yeah. huge congratulations, uh, man. Thank you so much. And, you know, everything you're saying is right. First off, I know Amy, uh, we've done political, activism work together in 871 the writers assistants and script coordinators union and she's really wonderful so mm -hmm. i'm glad you got to speak to her and you know i agree with everything that she said you know on one hand i can feel like it's been a long journey of 10 years in the business and probably five or six years out here in the tv writers assistant trenches the carousel you know before i got my shot but um that's pretty average. I would say getting staff before 30 uh, would have been remarkable and is remarkable for those it happens for, you know, I'm in my early thirties now and I feel very on schedule, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, because the Hollywood reporter and all those other trades really hype up creators that are 26, 27, 23, whatever it might be. Uh, and sometimes neglect maybe the leg up they had from familial wealth or connections, you know, right. it's easy to feel like you're behind or that things aren't happening as they should be happening. And, uh, you know, it's just not the case. It does take time. And 
you know, I'm, I'm glad to be taking the next step, but that just means that there's a new set of problems to navigate and a new set of challenges, you know? Right. No, absolutely. And breaking in at a, a very young age in your 20s, like you said, often comes through serendipity or through connections uh, or on the rare occasion when somebody, you know, have to sell a show when they're younger, which, again, doesn't happen very often. But when it does, you hear about it. So people think it happens more often than it does kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's true. And the thing that I would add is I think that um, there's this conception of like, oh, you haven't broken in until you get that first staff job or that first feature sale. And I would argue that, you know, the skills that I learned as a writer's assistant and even writing freelance reviews and criticism of TV and film over the years prepared me for this. I mean, I've been in five writers rooms prior to this. It's just that I wasn't staffed, you know, right. and <clears throat> yes, the huge difference in financial compensation and credit and prestige and all that stuff feels good. But a lot of times what the writer's assistant does or script coordinator does is just as important to the process and teaches you just as much about being a writer as staffing does. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, you can't eat experience. I do know that the wages are just simply too low in those positions, but they are good opportunities. And, you know, looking back on it, really breaking in for me was that first job I got in a writer's room where I was in the room and able to learn. And I think that from there, it was a more steady step or, you know, ladder upward. Whereas before that, I felt like I just couldn't get an anchor in anywhere. And it's not always a room necessarily. It's just sort of the right opportunity, whether it's getting an agent or manager who understands your work or getting into a room with people that get you or figuring out whether you belong in comedy or drama. You know, those are kind of the breaking in moments. And to me, staffing is just finally someone else recognizing that you've broken in, I guess. Right. And I've known writers who have never staffed, but have sold freelance scripts as well, you know, come through the same writer's assistant track or showrunner's assistant track and, you know, gotten a freelance episode, but never technically staffed. So that's mm -hmm. obviously a, a viable, uh, like yeah, you said, you know, I, being I a professional, you know, break, you know, making it or breaking in or whatever, like definitely, you know, there's, it's more than just staffing, of course. Yes, absolutely. That's true. And I, I've seen it been, and that still does happen. I know that the feeling out there is there's far fewer freelancers than there used to be. And, you know, I wasn't around in the nineties, so I can't speak to that. But, uh, most of the shows I've been on, one of the assistants has gotten a freelance. It's never happened to be me. Uh, but, uh, you know, that has happened and it's been a boon for people. And like you said, some people, you know, don't necessarily staff after that because the show gets canceled. And sometimes, you know, people are bouncing around as assistants, then they sell their own show. So right. I, there are a lot of ways to skin a cat. And I think, you know, people should feel like they've broken in once they're out here and plugging away and doing it. And everything else is just being recognized. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, I you know, obviously the freelance episodes like back in the 90s and early 2000s were more, I don't want to say common, but they were because... Uh, isn't it the WJ rule where you shoot 22 episodes, you need to have three freelance episodes or something like that. And when it goes down to like 10 or 13, you only need one. So obviously oh, the opportunities for sure. are fewer. And, you know? and just the reality is TV is different now. I, it yeah. was definitely much more of a sausage making <laughs> assembly line 
kind of attitude. I, I, I talked to a writer who I won't name who he was actually working for the copier company and fixed the copier. And then he somehow got a freelance and that was how he started. <laughs> and, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So don't compare yourself to someone that came out of here in 1991 or 1989. And, you know, they were making 100 episodes of various shows that like were just like law procedurals starring like William Shatner or whatever. So right. those, uh, those times are over. I agree. And I think TV is better now. There's more shows now, but the backside of that is that there's more competition to get those writing gigs and the episode orders are just shorter. So when there's eight or 10, uh, you know, you can do the back of the napkin math where the EP might want the first and final episode. The number two may be contractually entitled to two. Okay. That's about half already. And then if you've got a room bigger than six or seven people, there's just no more room to go around. Um, but by the same token, uh, there are a lot more shows being made. So, there are more jobs, you know, like on different shows than there used to be. So I don't know if life is better or worse. I I do know from WGA statistics that the average wage of a writer has gone down, but I will say the average quality of the thing they're working on has gone up. So I can't speak to whether life is better or worse uh, than it was 20 years ago. I could just sort of live in the current circumstances as best I can, you know? Right. And there are sort of legendary stories about people mailing in ideas to Star Trek The Next Generation and getting episodes that way. Just like all this randomness back then. But yeah, such is not the case now. Yes, yeah, the Brian, Brian Fuller. Well, you know, at the same time, I think that uh, those little exceptions always become known after the fact. Oh, I sure. Mean, while I agree with you, it's not as common to mail something in. Uh, how many people have gotten staffed off of Twitter accounts and YouTube videos, which to the next generation is going to sound insane. <laughs> That's true. You know, That's uh, true. Every, every generation has their version of Harrison Ford was my carpenter and he got cast as Han Solo. It just depends on the moment. I mean, that's what's crazy about this town and this business. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, and I could bitch about it, but uh, I like it better than being a doctor because or a lawyer because those positions are just clearly tracked out for you when you go to school forever and you become the thing and that's what it is. And you pick your specialty and you're a gallbladder surgeon and that's what you do, you know, and show business is so much more flexible. But the negative is sometimes your boss is a 22 year old who happens to be like Alan Alda's grandson or something. Right. Um, so let's talk about your new gig. You're cool. Staffing on which you're not allowed to disclose at this current moment in time. Maybe we'll have to, I'll be back on again later to talk about your experience working <laughs> on undisclosed show. Um, so I guess my question, my first question would be, how did it go down? How did you end up uh, interviewing with the, you know, the showrunner, get your showrunner meeting? And how did that whole process work? Um, this was sort of a different process mm-hmm. uh, without getting too much into the show and the streamer just, I had a pre-existing relationship with the showrunner from previous work I had done. Mm-hmm. And so the showrunner was able to just float that I should be staffed without a meeting. Like it was sort of, I was next in line for nice. an opportunity with that uh, production company. And so they were just able to go to bat for me. And now the, the uh, streamer that I'm working for still wanted to approve a script of mine. So that I guess that was the equivalent of a, sort of staffing meeting and approval, but I didn't have to kind of go through 
the carousel of different staffing meetings. I've never done that because I, interestingly, you know, I don't have representation, but I am now staffed. And so I'm sort of cart before the horse compared to a lot of people. And so now I'm in a weird situation where I'm e- emailing managers and agents and saying, hey, uh, I now I'm staffed and I would like to uh, not give you 10% of this, but give you 10% of the next thing you get me, you know? Right, right. Uh, but so that was a special circumstance that was based on a pre-existing relationship. And I had done good work for that company uh, uh, as an assistant, had gone above and beyond the call of duty, and they felt like I had earned a shot. And so that's how it came about. Right. Well, there are a couple listener questions that I wanted to run by you. One you've sort of already answered, but maybe you can maybe elaborate on on your sure. your search. But was were, was he repped before being staffed? Which you answered you were not. I was not. I am not currently repped. Um, I think there's a lot of schools of thought on this. I can say I know a lot of people who were not repped before they were staffed. Um, I know a lot of people who have reps and have not been staffed. You know, uh, most writers that I know say that the managers and agents don't get them work. However, they do get them meetings, uh, which is something I would love access to, which I don't currently, you know, generals and things like that. Mm -hmm. And additionally, a manager and an agent can help shape your career and say, this is a good job for you. This isn't a good job for you. And a lot of established writers, I think, sometimes forget the value of that because the manager and they have already done that shaping. Or it's just so natural that they're, say, a horror writer and they know they're horror people, so they write horror. But that's something that I would like to have is, you know, representation where I can say I want to have generals with these type of places, find me these type of things. But uh, that's different from getting you a job. Managers and agents don't often get you a job. So um, I would say over half of the writers I know were not repped when they were first staffed. Right. And their their staffing opportunities came because of prior work experience and already knowing people in the industry and getting referrals and things? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I would say that the majority of them were a writer's room assistant of some kind and then were bumped up on that show or the next show. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's a percentage of them that won a contest, usually Austin or Sundance, that then got them attention i know one person who got staffed out of a prestigious mfa program that has an award you know best tv writer in the class and they won that prize and that set them up to be staffed so there are a number of other ways but i would say that the fastest trajectory is writer's room assistant make a good impression be staffed on the next season or the next show Mm -hmm. and then there's other kind of assistant opportunities like agent's assistant I've seen that happen, getting staffed off an agent's desk as well. Uh, oddly, the person I know who was staffed off an agent's desk didn't have, or sorry, the manager's desk didn't have a manager, but then just signed with the place where she had been on the desk. Uh, so, you know, like there are a lot of ways to do it. And I would say my attitude towards representation has been, and this is the advice I've gotten from a lot of older writers, I'm going to keep doing my best work and reaching out when it's convenient to make connections and put out in the universe I'm open to having representation, but I don't let that stop me from making my own opportunities, aggressively emailing. Um, You know, I'll tell a little story. When you're in the WGA, there's like a portal now because a lot of people's agents can't work for them because of the labor dispute. Mm -hmm. And there is a show that I came across that I felt 
oh, that would be perfect for me. Then I looked up the showrunner and they had worked with a showrunner I had worked for a few years ago, emailed them and said, hey, can you put a word in? They said, of course. And I haven't heard back yet. Obviously, who knows if even these things will happen. Um, But, you know, that is kind of how a lot of this stuff actually works. And an agent or manager can't make up for that sort of like gumshoe research you have to do to find opportunities. Right. Absolutely. And in addition, uh, a referral coming from a fellow showrunner, someone that, that's vouching for you to another showrunner is different than an agent or manager doing the same thing because you're their client, right? Whereas the showrunner doesn't really have skin in the game. They don't have an incentive to do it. They're just doing it because they they like you and, and respect your work as opposed to they're trying to get money <laughs> for their client and themselves. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. Um, but like you had mentioned, though, the manager's reps are thing they are good for is getting you meetings, but also helping like development. Like if you're trying to sell something or get pitch meetings, that's also something like I think is uh, definitely of great use having a rep. But being staffed, like you had mentioned, is not necessarily that strong, their strong point. Yeah. And I look, uh, I would love to be repped. You know, I think it is good. I'm not one of those people that's going to sit here and say they don't need reps. I think <laughs> reps are important, uh, but it just is one of those things where um, they will. It's sort of you, the joke I've heard made is a lot of times you get reps as soon as you don't need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, and I, I do think that is true to an extent. And so, you know, you can reach out to people, you can build relationships, you can, you know, what I do is just mention to writers that I'm meeting with or that I'm working with, hey, I'm looking. Uh, not say, hey, can you introduce me to your agent or manager because you don't know what kind of roster they have. Mm-hmm. But just putting it out in the universe that uh, you are available for that and would love to have those conversations and maybe it'll happen. And when it happens, it happens. But uh, I don't lose sleep at night over not having a reps. Right. Um, here's another question for you. Um, what steps did he take that led to getting staffed and what did he invest time resources in that he didn't think was worth it or didn't pay off? This is a great question. Um, and I think that there's a couple caveats and the big one is that just because it didn't work for me doesn't mean it won't work for you. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind, listener slash question asker. So, um, I got out here when I was in my late twenties, I had been in New York which I explained on my previous episode, but long story short, I had been an independent film uh, in the production and creative side. I had a production company. Uh, we were underwater and it was really hard to make ends meet. And I kind of realized that TV writing and TV in general might be a more fruitful thing in the short term. In the long term, I do want to make my own content again. I want to be in film again, but uh, this is the place to go where there seemed to be work. And I think that was a calculated choice on my part. And I also love TV, but still love film. So I'm out here at 27 and I became a post PA on a show called Revenge on ABC. And again, long story short, I just began working my way up the assistant ladder to get into a writer's room. Uh, I did post PA, office PA, showrunner's assistant, writer's assistant, writer's assistant, staff. So it's about six jobs in five years to get to that that point. Um, I think that being an assistant in a room is good. I think being a post PA or office PA is next best to writer's PA, I think set PA is the least direct way and very difficult to get in a writer's room. 
So I think that is one of the big things. If you, you want to be a TV writer, I would try to get a writer's assistant or writer's PA or showrunner's assistant or script coordinator job. Um, and that was one thing I invested myself in. And the other thing was just writing samples. Um, I, I know the fellowships work for the people that they work for. I know that contests work for the people they work for. A rule for myself is I don't write content I wasn't going to write anyway to a contest or to an opportunity. I write scripts that I want to write to develop my portfolio and what I believe I'm good at. And now sometimes I'll write samples in the genre of a show that I'm on as a potential staffing sample when I was an assistant. But I would always write something that I knew would add to the portfolio of Brendan Gallagher's work that shows like who I am. Uh, now there are writers out there who took the opposite tack and wrote tons of specs and did the fellowships and got in and that worked for them. So uh, I'm not saying that's the way to do it, but for me, uh, and anything that is not about developing you as a writer maybe isn't the best use of your time and doing things that don't feel right for you as an artist may not be worth your time. Right. Now, you staff for the first time, and I know your writer's room is a virtual one because you're working now, so it may be a little bit different. But what I wanted to ask was, and I, I had asked a similar question to Amy Thurlow, who obviously we had just discussed a few minutes ago, who is also a veteran support staffer. The thing she learned that she found exceptionally valuable in terms of like being a writer's assistant, being a script coordinator, what are the things that she sort of learned that she feels will help her writing and, and, you know, future staffing. But as a currently staffed, recently staffed writer on a show, what are the things that you learned as a writer's assistant, as a, a showrunner's assistant, as a P, writer's PA that you feel were really, really helpful to know or have known now that you're staffed? Like, what do you draw from, from your previous experience? So I'll start this with a joke. Uh, a friend of mine sent me, uh, she is now staffed, but she got me my first job out here as a post PA. And she had a long and winding road to staffing as well. And she texted me when she found out that I was staffed. Yeah, it's great being staffed after being a writer's assistant. It's half the work for triple the pay. And uh, I think that is somewhat true in that, um, being a writer's assistant, you know, you have to keep everything that happens in the room organized and together and coherent and be able to recall anything that happened in a moment's notice. Whereas as a staff writer, your energy is focusing on pitches and shaping the ideas and it's a more artistic and less regimented day. But I do think you learn a lot as a writer's assistant. And to me, the biggest thing that you learn is the politics of being in a writer's room. And by this, I mean, every room is different, but the showrunner is the person in charge. And there's a bunch of other writers with various uh, pay grades and prestige levels. And you as a writer's assistant have to make sure that you produce notes that are accurate. That doesn't always mean that you're a court stenographer and writing everything that happens. You're producing a document that the showrunner and the EPs can use. So is there a staff writer who's pitching too much? Maybe some of their stuff doesn't make it into the notes. Is there a way to highlight what the showrunner said or landed on or make the showrunner look good in the notes? You're going to learn how to do that. And as a result, you start to see how different writers work in a room, the different roles they play. And then when you become a staff writer, you can kind of embrace roles that make sense for you. And an example is 
Um, the rooms I've worked in use index cards to write scenes out on. Sometimes you would use whiteboards. Uh, I'm a big cards guy. I'm a big structure guy. And I can kind of see the structure and map it. And I can find like, oh, you know, in episode four, we have A, B, and C. Do we owe scene X in episode two to set this up? And so I volunteered to be the card guy, even though my handwriting is not that great, because I know structure and memory and um, organization is a strength of mine in the room. And I knew that was a role that I could fill and to be useful and feel like I'm helping and present without maybe over pitching or pitching too much. And not that I don't pitch a lot, but you don't want to be pitching as much as an EP when you're a staff writer. So that was a way for me to be useful and to be present without maybe coming on too strong in my first assignment. Okay. Now, as a staff writer, on your, like you would mention the hierarchy and things that, that you, uh, you know, trying to figure out was helpful having been a writer's assistant to know the different roles and what your place is and that kind of thing and the note taking process. But now, having gone through the initial phases of your, your uh, staff writing gig, uh, sort of, you know, you spent your first, was it about a month you've been at it so far? Yeah, just about. What are things that you know now a month in that you, don't, you didn't really realize on your first day? Or have you not had any sort of realizations of that magnitude <laughs> Hmm. I, well, you know, a lot of it's been as I expected because I was familiar with the process mm -hmm. of how this production company and the show I'm working for worked. But, you know, I think maybe it's, if anything, it's just sort of realizing what you'll be focusing on as a staff writer, like down to figuring out how you're going to make the outlines feel and sound in the same rhythm as the showrunner and the EPs write their outlines. And we always talk about writing in the voice of, but we talk about that in scripts, but we don't talk about it in terms of just like learning how to pitch the kinds of things in the framing that the showrunner likes to hear them or writing an outline with the rhythm and style that the showrunner writes in. And so I think that's been the biggest learning opportunity for me is realizing that being in the voice of the show and the showrunner is in every aspect of your work, not just in the um, not just in the writing of the scripts. Right. And I know with the fellowships, especially, although many of them are turning from specs, spec episodes to original pilots, it seems. But a lot of writers got sort of their they they cut their teeth, so to speak, in terms of like learning someone else's voice by writing spec episodes, again, either for fellowships or, you know, back 15, 20 years ago, instead of pilots, oftentimes you had a spec episode of a script to show you can mimic uh, a showrunner's, a different show's voice. Where did you specifically not having done uh, the fellowships and things like that, where did you learn to mimic uh, a showrunner's voice that's a good question you know i have written a couple specs when i first was starting out years and years ago i wrote one parks and rec and one true blood which i never want to pull out again uh, <laughs> but for me a lot of it was when i was an assistant i would read every document that came in so i would read 
every one pager, every outline, every script draft. If I could, I would try to get in an hour early and just read and read and read and read. And then I could analyze how the writer of the episode was processing the uh, voice of the showrunner. And I think that was helpful. And then also just recognizing that any original pilot that you write is a different genre and a different style, at least a little bit. You're not always writing a not every Brendan Gallagher script sounds and feels exactly the same. So thinking about what's in the world of your show, what's in the tone of your show, how the characters feel, and then apply that to what you're doing with the showrunner. Mm -hmm. And how is, we spoke to um, Jay Holtham about working in a virtual writer's room, because I guess Supergirl, his show, is doing that now. But they were just starting. I think they were in their first few days or even you know early days of it. Um, how long have you guys been working in the virtual writer's room and how's that working out for you guys? Um, it's been a two week process. Um, we did one week where we were doing, you know, standard days of pitch and comb through episodes like a normal room. And we're now we're on our outlines. So, uh, the week for pitching worked surprisingly well. Um, it felt like I was in a room. It felt fairly normal. Um, and, you know, it's actually been a really nice way to check in and just be connected to people. So I've really liked it so far. I mean, sometimes Zoom gets laggy, stuff like that. But um, I think it's been good. Um, I don't think it's going to replace the in-person room because I do prefer being in a room with people and getting together and, and having that creative energy. You do feel the distance, I think. But it is an acceptable substitute, especially if you're a little bit along in the process and you, you're just kind of shaping things up. Uh, so I would say so far, so good. And you had mentioned earlier on, and I know that your background is in sort of um, independent film and, and doing your own projects. And I know you have uh, you would love to do you know more film work as well in the future. Uh, and can, coming from that background of, of feature film and working in television, which is obviously much more collaborative, what should feature writers out there, the feature writers out there who are interested in working in television, how can they prepare for, again, working in a collaborative television environment where obviously you, you're you on a much stricter time frame, generally speaking, and you have to work with others and you definitely take a back seat to others, uh, your showrunner and the, the senior level writers. Uh, what What advice would you have for them or what would you say to them um, you know, again, feature people who are used to writing features that are interested in, in possibly making the transition to television. I think that's a good question. You know, um, you know, I, when I worked in physical production, that was a team environment. So I don't know what it's like for the feature writer that just works at home by themselves. I've never done that. I went to theater school, which was collaborative, uh, some film school, which was collaborative filmmaking in New York, which is collaborative. And yes, I wasn't collaborating as a writer all the time. But, you know, if you're a writer director, um, you're collaborating with producers and actors and uh, technicians. And so I would say, if you're a feature person that has those experiences on set, just look at how you have the same respect and uh, division of duties and delegation and being delegated to that you have on a film set and apply that to your TV writing and, and try to compartmentalize your writer's room experience that way. Um, now, as far as someone coming from a 
feature writing only background or a novel writing background. That's just not my approach to art. I've always been very collaborative. I love people. I love getting up in the morning and being with a group and solving problems. I love leaning on people. I love giving credit to people where credit's due. You know, I always uh, have made a point to ask assistance beneath my level wherever I'm at to assist me, whether it's as a staff writer asking the script coordinator for their input, if they have any pitches, or when I was a writer's assistant telling the writer's PA, like, hey, do you want to cover for me and learn how to do uh, my job for a couple days and I can, you know, cover the phones or what have you for you after lunch or whatever. So for me, collaboration is such a big part of the artistic process. And so if you aren't drawn to that naturally, maybe TV is not for you. But if you have worked on set or in a collaborative medium, just realize that writing can be collaborative too. Just as much as you trust a gaffer to light a frame for you and it's still your shot, uh, you should trust a showrunner or um, a script coordinator and anyone in between to offer feedback to make your work better and, and everyone's going to be better for it. Right. Now, you got your first job in L.A. working as a post PA through a friend of yours. I guess you had mentioned she uh, referred you to that job. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm sure you know a number of other assistants and uh, writers assistants, showrunners assistants, writers PAs, etc., who got jobs through various different ways, I'm sure. Um, and having been staffed yourself, uh, I'm sure you've seen, you know, and worked in a number of writers' rooms, I'm sure you've seen a number of, of different ways. What are some other ways for those writers out there who may not necessarily have a friend who says, hey, you know, check out this, there's a, a, a writer's I mean, a post PA job that's open. Uh, and as we all know, as we spoke to, you know, again, Amy Thurlow, if you're interested in, in learning about the staff support positions, um, that taking a position anywhere in the production, and you'd specified office PAs are better than, you know, set PAs and things like that, but taking a position on a show somewhere, anywhere, it can be an in, can lead you to, you know, further positions uh moving up that sort of ladder from writer's pa you know from office pa because i've heard it done i think uh, uh 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 emma dudley was a costume department pa and became a writer's pa i think something like that and so you can make that transition but from your experience and from all the things you've seen what are some other ways that people newer writers who are trying to get into a staff support staff position where can they find these jobs? Where can they network to meet people to find these jobs? What, what sort of advice would you have for them in, in terms of that? Yeah, I think that you should look at that writer's room job as the end goal and think about, okay, if I can't get in the room as a writer, I'm going to get in as an assistant. If I can't get in as an assistant, I'm going to get a job somewhere in the production as close to the writing as possible. If I can't get a job on a show, I want to put myself in networking opportunities and groups that are going to be with people trying to get on shows, right? So starting a writer's group is the easiest way and the most common thing, but it's common because it works. I mean, I had numerous groups before I stopped having a writer's group because I had enough people that were just friends of mine. I trusted to read my material that I could work with. And to that point, you know, things like Film Independent, which I'm a member of proudly and will always be a member of, I think is great. I think if you're eligible to join a union at any entertainment job that you have, uh, or if there's a group of people getting together 
to talk about, even if you're just, you know, starting as a PA, are there PA meetups? Are there PA networking events? Are there PA organizing efforts going on? And I think don't look at it like, oh, I have to have X, Y, or Z job, or these are the few things to break in. Sit down and write down what ways you think you can get more exposure to the people that can hire you. And don't even look at it as a Machiavellian thing. Look at it as you love film and television. You want to be a part of it. How do I get closer to it? And I think that there are answers to that that are outside the box of, oh, I got a writer's PA job. And so, you know, I can think of a number of things that I think are useful, whether it be starting a podcast, as Kevin has done, or uh, <laughs> joining Film Independent, or submitting to contests that are at festivals that you can go to to meet people. Uh, all those things are about getting closer to where it's happening. And you mentioned you got your staffing job because you had worked with the showrunner of your current show on a previous show in a different capacity. So you already have sort of a built-in level of trust and communication and, and you got along. But I've also heard stories where the showrunner views the assistants as assistants. Like they don't, they're not encouraging. They're not about promotion. It's about you do your job and that's the end of story. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in that position, but I'm, you know, I'm sure you you know everyone talks how do you know like for example if a person is fortunate enough to have the opportunity to join you know a couple different shows how do they know when a showrunner is likely to be the supportive type who tends to promote from within versus the type who is just get your do job done i don't really want to know that you're a writer well you know, I get this question a lot. And the first mm -hmm. thing is, if uh, audience, if you listen to what Kevin just said, and you said, that's me, you need to quit that job. Um, the reality <laughs> is, if you know, for sure that the showrunner or the producer is not going to promote you, you need to leave. Because the whole reason you're making 12 or $15 an hour is to get that promotion and to move to the next level. Now, I think, Kevin, really, your question is, how do you know if it's right. not explicit? And I agree, the first season of a show, you're testing each other out. Uh, I am assertive on this point, and I think others should be too. When I was a writer's assistant, I knew the showrunner from before. I had been a PA for her before. I walked in on the first day, and I said, hey, you know, I'm really excited to work here. Do you think it's possible uh, for me to get an episode this season? And she said, no. And I said, okay, uh, I totally get it. It's the first season, and uh, I understand that. I just wanted to see kind of where I stood. Um, do you think that's a conversation we can revisit later? And she said, of course, you know, I, I, and then we went on and she said, look, I would love to give you an episode, but I can't feasibly do that in season one. These are the commitments I have to the writers on staff. This is my situation with the network. Uh, I like your material, but it's not time yet. I said, okay. And then at the end of season one, uh, unfortunately, uh, the showrunner did not come back to that show. So neither did I, but um, you know, I was in a position to, at the end of the season, before we knew that, to come back and say, hey, you know, we had this conversation last year when we started. Uh, you mentioned that we could have that conversation again. And what do you think my future is here? And we had to leave it open because we didn't know if the show was coming back. But if she had said, look, you need to wait again, 
then, but I want you back as writer's assistant, I would have said, okay, what do you think we could do to kind of further my development this season if I can't have an episode? And if they don't have an answer for that, then the next question you can ask is, okay, do you think that if we came back for a third season, I would get an episode? And if they can't answer that question, you kind of have to ask yourself why you're there. Um, it's always sort of the sunk cost fallacy to think the job that you're in right now is the best opportunity for you. And don't get me wrong, you have to pay bills. Health insurance is tied to jobs in the US. There's all sorts of reasons to stay in that job. And I'm not here to tell you, quit your job and lose your health insurance. Obviously, as we know, anything can happen, even a global pandemic. Right. But I do think it's valid to, to really think about what am I going to do if I stay here for five seasons and there's no path forward for me? Was that the best use of my time when I could have been spending five years at a less demanding job writing my own samples, looking for another position that has more room for promotion? And the other thing that's difficult to understand sometimes it's sad is sometimes they're open to promotion and development, but not for you. And that's mm. possible. And it's not necessarily that you're bad. But it may be that there's a type of writer or a type of personality that they like, that they connect with. You know, I'm a very outgoing, naturally loud, boisterous person. Um, I don't try to bring that energy into every room that I'm in. But if my showrunner is a more introverted, less forward person, are they going to see themselves in me? Are they going to see me as a potential protege to develop? Maybe, maybe not. It's a question you have to ask yourself. And so I think uh, you owe it to yourself to check in and really think about if this is the best opportunity for you. And even if it is your quote unquote dream job, it may be the dream job, but not the dream position. Right. And taking a step back from that and taking a step back into your current situation as as a first time staffed writer, uh, to celebrate a little bit with you, how did you celebrate getting your first staff gig so people can live vicariously well, through you? That's, that's a very nice question. Uh, my wife, Claire, Claire yeah. Downs, who mm -hmm. is also a great writer, uh, she bought me a very expensive bottle of Japanese whiskey, mm -hmm. and it was there after my first day. And then we went out to dinner, and we, had, uh, we drank together and just sort of toasted that time because, you know, she's been there with me through uh, you know, half a decade of struggling through these things. And I think a lot of it was just reflecting on all that we've been through. Cause you know, she was there with me when I was an office PA and I had to go to the emergency room and I didn't have insurance because NBC universal didn't cover it. And so, you know, it really felt like a victory. And so I'd say, you know, my wife and I savored that moment together. Mm -hmm. And you got into the writer's guild. Yes. Uh, and I, as anyone who follows me on Twitter and Kevin knows I'm very political, so I'm excited to uh, lend my political energy to a new union. I was very involved with 871. I plan on being very involved with the Writers Guild. I'm the show captain for my show, which is sort of like a shop steward in the Writers Guild. And uh, I'm very excited for the upcoming negotiations. I think the Guild has a strong bargaining position. I'm very excited about David Young and David Goodman's leadership, and I'm really excited to get involved. And they've postponed or discussed postponing the negotiations due to the coronavirus outbreak? That is correct. Okay. I don't have any information beyond the email that was sent out to the Guild membership and I believe went public yesterday, and it just said that they're likely considering postponing. Um, I will wait to follow their lead on that. I don't have any uh, I don't have any public or private information 
uh, on that other than wait and see right now, but I'm sure they'll make the best decision for our bargaining. And so I'll look forward to seeing where the uh, negotiating committee lands on that. Right. And then, so you're working on your show, the undisclosed show, uh, working in your virtual writer's room outside of work, outside of, of your current gig. How are you spending your time at home, self-isolating or self-social distancing, self-quarantine, whatever you want to call it? Um, how, how are you spending your time not working? You know, I am, I, I guess you would say I'm a type A personality. And by that, I mean, I really like to schedule myself. And so, uh, you know, luckily during the workday, we have work. So nine-ish to five-ish during the week, uh, I am taken care of in terms of what I need to be doing. But uh, I'll schedule from, I still get up at 6.30 in the morning at most days and work out. I come back and get ready for work. I, I put on a button down shirt and pants and shoes to go sit at the computer as though I'm at work. Um, I schedule a amount of time for lunch, like 30 minutes or an hour, depending on my timing uh, that I take off of work. Even if I'm just working on my script and my outline in the evenings, my wife and I will like, okay, today we're going to work on an outline for a feature we might be working on tonight. We're going to watch Barry Lyndon, you know, tonight we're going to play a game and do a puzzle and even schedule that out. Um, it's not that I like am an OCD or anything. It's just that I have found working from home as much as I have. And I, you know, I just came off of nine months working from home. Uh, scheduling religiously is a way to stay sane and to look forward to the next thing and not just let the days flow into each other. So that's my number one thing. Uh, the other thing I've been doing a lot of, I'm a very social person. I've been doing a lot of Zoom and Skype. We, uh, My wife and I will play jackbox games like jackbox.tv games mm -hmm. with friends uh from work or from political actions and stuff just to see faces and sometimes we'll just play with friends from twitter who we don't even know from other cities to just have that like social interaction of someone you don't know that well you know so a lot of just like integrating social interaction into the day and then weekends um you know we will schedule i'll schedule out like i'll sit down when i get up and literally write like 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. drink coffee, 10 a.m. to noon, uh, whatever else I'm going to do, listen to a podcast, even if it's that mundane, just to keep the day regimented and going and organized, because uh, that helps me like stay anchored, I think. And then in terms of just my sanity, we have been taking drives, uh, keeping acceptable social distancing on the weekends to see something other than my apartment. And then the last thing is just uh, our beautiful dog uh, keeps me going because uh, he doesn't know that there's a pandemic and he's always happy. Right. Well, somebody posted on Twitter. I'm sure lots of people have, but uh, this is like a dream situation for all the pet dogs out there who, who oh, yeah. are all staying home, all their, the kids and the parents all staying home. So, Yeah, he's trying to see if he can get extra snacks and he hasn't succeeded so far. Um, you had mentioned uh, Barry Lyndon. Uh, oh, before that, I, I thought was thinking as you were listing off all the things that you sort of schedule, it reminded me of uh, Hugh Grant in the movie about a boy. And he's like, oh, <laughs> I go get a haircut, two units. Oh, I watch this show, one unit. Like he schedules his day by a certain amount of units he has to, to use, utilize in that given. Right. Day. Yeah. You know, look, uh, again, I'm I'm not an uptight guy. I can no, know no, no. I just thought it was funny. And if it, no, but it, it is. But I was just going to say, I think it's useful because. Yeah. Um, again, I just have worked from home more than most people. So I feel like I'm a guru on this subject. And 
the life of a writer can become very unstructured very quickly. And, you know, a lot of the great prolific writers who were novelists or essayists only wrote for four hours a day because they wrote for four hours a day nonstop right. without bullshitting around. But part of finding that time to focus, say for me, I, I'm a little more I, I, I'll, I'll do, um, you know, six hours or so when I'm working from home on a show, you know, because uh, that's the we've been doing check-ins at 9.30 and check-ins at 3.30, so that gives me that whole time, like, that's my work day, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I think part of being a disciplined writer is disciplining the time when you're not writing and saying, I've put the pen or the computer away. I'm not tickling away at the outline when I should be letting it rest and coming back to it tomorrow. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's smart. And you hear most great writers like you said, they wake up and they schedule a time to write. And then when they're not writing, they're not writing. But it, it it ultimately is not you're writing a few little bit here and there scattered throughout the day and you're sort of aimless. Maybe you did a little bit. Maybe you didn't do a lot. And so, no, I 100 percent agree with what you're saying. And I think that that's that's brilliant that you're able to sort of schedule that and stick to it, which I think is also an important thing because it can be challenging, especially now. But no, I think that's it's all good points that you made. Well, and I'll also add, I, you know, I have much love and respect for all the parents out there. I know you're a parent, Kevin, because <laughs> during this, uh, I know that rigid scheduling in this time would be very difficult because I'm sure this has upended a lot of the support system that you have as a parent. And I just uh, my love and thoughts are with you and all the parents out there right now. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I mean, we all make do. We all have our own. Uh, challenges and, and unique uh, things we've got to handle with this. Um, but you had Mary, met, uh, excuse me, you had mentioned Barry Lyndon. And so I wanted to get from you some other, do you have any other film, TV, book recommendations? What are you binging now or what are you interested in potentially binging? What have you read recently? Uh, what are you, okay. what's, what's on your stack of books to be read? I'm ready for this. So well, right. I am writing a pilot right now about Native American casinos. Oh. And I'm also working on a feature that is about witches uh, in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of books on my shelf that are vaguely about these things, but I will give you a couple books that are either vaguely adjacent or just not adjacent at all that I just got through. I just got through an amazing audiobook called Midnight at Para Palace, The Birth of Modern Istanbul, about a luxury hotel in Istanbul between World War One and World War Two, and the people who kind of formed or were a part of the artistic and political world of the modern secular formation of the Turkish state after the Ottoman Empire fell. Hmm. And that was one that I just happened to f stumble upon because the books I needed for research weren't available in the library because you have to put them on hold and wait till they churn through everyone else who wants them like a normal library. Right. Uh, so highly recommend. That's one that's great. Uh, another one isn't the best written, but it was a great subject. It's called Winner Take All. Um, Steve Wynn, Kirk Kikorian, Gary Loveman, and I think it's the founding of New Vegas. I, it cuts out. Let me hold on. There we go. And the race to own Las Vegas about like Vegas from the end of mob rule in the 70s to the present and like all the crazy like building of the Luxor and the Bellagio and the Venetian. And I love Vegas. So that was really, really fun. Um those are the two that I've really been vibing on. Oh, one other one. Uh, this is just very like relevant politically. It's called Overthrow, America's Century of Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq, just like everywhere we have intervened 
across the world where we've overthrown governments. I think it's like 20 in the last hundred years. So wow. that one is a great um, book too. Uh, TV wise, McMillions is the only great thing I've watched so far this year. I've watched some things that weren't so great and I don't talk about those things <laughs> because right. uh, I would love to work for any of your TV shows, even if your last one wasn't great. Right. Uh, so I don't have a lot in terms of that stuff uh, cooking right now. I hope to have some good film and TV recommendations when I watch some better stuff. But uh, if you haven't seen McMillions yet, I think that's the the ticket in terms of TV that I've seen recently. Yeah, and you're not the first to mention that on the podcast even. So that's uh, that's on my list too. But <laughs> obviously, like, like everybody, I'm sure my 2C list is just exceedingly large. So we're working through it slowly but surely. Totally. I know that you've got your uh, check-in very, very soon with your show, so I don't want to keep you too long. What For those writers out there, because I know a lot of people are, are anxious and uh, are self-isolating, some of them even self-isolating by themselves. I think you and I are fortunate that we you know, are self-isolating with our families, you know, with our loved ones, whereas some people are are not able to do that, unfortunately. Um, but just in general, for those feeling anxious or isolated, what sort of words would you have for, for those listeners out there? This too shall pass. You know, uh, it is really scary right now. And I, I, it's okay to be scared and depressed, but this too shall pass. Um, history hasn't happened a lot in our lifetime to us. We've inflicted history on the Middle East, but we haven't really had a lot of history uh, before Trump, it was a very smooth sailing in terms of uh, American empire versus the rest of human history. And know that the Spanish flu happened and a lot of other things like this happened in the past and we got through them. Uh, and so it seems like this is a world ending calamity when in fact, a lot of stuff like this has happened before and we've been okay. So we're going to get through this and all you can do is do your best uh, take care of yourself and don't feel like you have to sit on Twitter all day long if it doesn't make you feel good because uh, the news and the virus will be there tomorrow when you have the capacity to process more political minutia and, uh, you know, all that stuff. All right. And for more of Brendan, be sure to follow Brendan on Twitter. It's at Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-E-N, -E Gallagher. Um, and be sure to check out our other Scripts and Scribes interview with Brendan, where he goes into a lot more detail about his background and support staff positions and how he broke into the industry and all that. And you can find that on our website, scriptsandscribes.com, or wherever you download your podcast from. Thank you again, Brendan. It's always a pleasure. Uh, pleasure's all mine, Kevin. So great to be back. Uh, always love coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. And remember, for all you listening, we're in this together. Stay safe. Be well, and we will see you tomorrow.